You're listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. I am editor and host, Billy Lennon. On this episode, I'm going to be reading a review written by Matt Morgenstern on Lauren Berlant and Kathleen Stewart's The Hundreds. About Matt. Matt Morgenstern is a graduate student in literary and cultural studies at the University of Cincinnati. His current research interests include transatlantic modernist fiction, animal studies, disability studies, and autofiction. About the authors of the book, Lauren Berlant is the George M. Pullman Distinguished Service Professor in the Department of English Language and Literature at the University of Chicago. And Kathleen Stewart is a professor of anthropology at the University of Texas at Austin. An interview and conversation between me and Matt follows the reading of the piece. Matt Morgenstern. Thought still looking around on Lauren Berlant and Kathleen Stewart's The Hundreds. Published in 2019 by Duke University Press, 184 pages. Recently, when leaving my university's main library, I encountered my prom date from high school, who, in the year or so we've been students in Cincinnati, I've seen only once before. I had developed a crush on her while she and I were on a spring break trip to Peru, a trip I was using to formulate some artificial self-reinvention during my senior year of high school. And it was a crush so great that I broke up with my then-girlfriend over Facebook Messenger, The immaturity of this whole situation is not lost on me. After the trip in question, I asked this crush to prom, and we hung out a few times as well to be friends. But following a disastrous after-prom and high school graduation, she and I lost that spark fairly quickly. Because of this past, tenuous connection, when we met on the steps outside the library, a meaningful chat was unlikely. She said hello, I said hello. She inquired after what I was doing in Cincinnati, having forgotten I was here at all. I asked if she was still an engineering major, which she was. And that was that. I said, have fun, down the stairs as she walked down the stairs. Heading away, I couldn't help but think of the strangeness of interactions like these. A few seconds previous, I only just recognized her coming down the stairs, hoping she wouldn't look at me. Yet there we were, engaged in an affected propriety that further estranged us from each other. What, after all, was there to say after what did and didn't happen? Why, after all, should there be? The valences of ordinary yet profoundly effective moments that make us who we are and the world around us what it is, for better or worse, constitute one of the many subjects taken up by Lauren Berlant and Kathleen Stewart in their book, The Hundreds. Though Berlant and Stewart are humanities scholars writing concretized scholarship, the hundreds envisages a more creative critical study that is part of a wave of academic texts interested in upending conventional scholarship in favor of a more Bartesian confluence of the self and philosophical work. Bartesian referring to the French theorist Roland Barthes, side note. As Berlant and Stewart detail in the preludic section of the book, they are using hundred-word constraints both to represent those constraints of language on our thinking, but also, more fundamentally, 
to provide dilations that bridge effective ways of seeing between the world and our relationships with it. For Berlant and Stewart, this attention to world-building dissolves the barriers to interrogating everyday existence by looking at the spaces between unreality and reality, theory and lived experience. Though they write in what most would consider prose poems, Berlant and Stewart are immersed in enough scholarship to discursively outline the effective, mobilizing properties of their entries. Besides being influential scholars of affect theory themselves, their recent texts include Cruel Optimism and Ordinary Affects, respectively. Berlant and Stewart engage with noted cultural studies and affect theory names like Sarah Ahmed, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, Cian Nye, Theodore Adorno, and Gilles Deleuze. But as with the mission of the book overall, their citing and indexing practices dislodge the ordinary academic citation in that when these and other names come up, they are not cited per an MLA or Chicago standard. Instead, they appear in parentheses after each entry, not dissimilar to Maggie Nelson's way of citing in The Argonauts, an example of what Berlant and Stewart may call fictocriticism or auto-theory. It's ultimately up to the reader, if interested, to go back to the Some Things We Thought With index to find the actual sources, and, as well, to find the sources within the entries themselves. As reality is not academic theory, some things we thought with encompasses the ever-growing world and its intersections between theory, daily life, and seeing and thinking. Berlant and Stewart's index utilizes the aforementioned names as grounding, perhaps permissive founders of the discourse, but it also consists of the Beatles, Sister Talk Over the Decades, Red Bull, Instagram, and a Fuck You Shrug. The 100 entries invoke these everyday things alongside more established critical theory and philosophy and entries that range from everyday life in early spring to the state of drift to two young men with beards kissing on the floor. Some are written from Berlant's perspective, usually taking place in Chicago, others from Stewart's, Austin, Texas. But I find myself most compelled by Berlant and Stewart because they focalize the power of language to encapsulate the ephemeral. In friend-hating, for example, Berlant and Stewart ask, what's the difference between talk that pushes talk away and conversation? As with many of what I would call Berlant and Stewart's rhetorical questions as claims, I don't have a clear answer, though it must live within the interactions we have with anyone at any given moment. It must also lie in the everyday things that make us do things with, to, and for each other. Yet this creates a paradox I struggle with, and one that the hundreds wishes to confront us within our interpersonal and interpersonal relations. How can we negotiate a retreat into an unreal world with our immersion in the real one? What casts us into each domain, and when should we strive to retreat out of them? The Hundreds is against literal-minded explorations of the ordinary. It is looking around in unorthodox ways and being surprised at what you may find dwelling there. It is the there, there, that something new can walk into sight and into mind. It is critical thinking and the difficulty to be had therein. Even though I earn a living reading, writing, and talking about fictional, manufactured lives, I've increasingly come to think that they are, to some extent, much less interesting than reality. 
As I see it, the explosion of fictionalized entertainment in our society reveals the limits of fiction to transform everyday, unattuned life. If anything, the state of academic English in this country may reveal that many people no longer find freshness and verve in fiction, which why I would in part attribute to an oversaturation of entertainment besides the university system's obvious prioritization of STEM education. But I do not want to make generalizations about deadened reading sensibilities, especially when, even for people addicted to their phones, reading happens constantly. I will say, however, the texts urging us to renew how we look at life are of the utmost importance in this time of mass and social media infection, climate and socio-political anxiety, and late capitalist malaise and duress. Such a propulsive, effective interest in articulating reality's novel complexities in its tiny, expansive moments drives the hundreds. This is what I read in Berlant and Stewart's last entry, Not Over Yet. They write, Everywhere you went, there was love and other kinds of dispossession. Everywhere you went, you had urges without plans, and sometimes you made plans. You can look around where you're sitting now and know that what's there isn't all of it. The Hundreds focalizes an intrinsic desire to explore the world's simplicities as the foundation for the potentiality of the extraordinary. Berlant and Stewart show that, indeed, ordinary life is ordinary and transformative, containing so many possibilities for thinking about who we are in the world, really. But our alienation from this ordinariness has catapulted us into the need to lose ourselves in all kinds of ways when... Already, our daily lives are the most fascinating things around. This is what I didn't realize in that Peru hostel as I typed madly away on my phone to break up with my high school girlfriend. I also don't want this review to read as some latter-day atonement for the ills I wrecked in high school and have, unfortunately, wrecked since. But I'm hopefully getting better, and I know now that although imaginative fantasy is essential to new ideas and experiences, it can obscure the beauty and fault of what's really there. But that's also the argument of the hundreds. What makes a life, ultimately, is other people, and to forget about those other people is to harm those people and lose something incalculably valuable. Coming up next, a conversation with Matt Morgenstern. I'm here now to interview Matt Morgenstern, who recently reviewed for us The Hundreds by Lauren Berlant and Kathleen Stewart. Matt, how's it going? It's going all right. How's it going, Billy? I'm, I'm doing okay, man. Doing okay. Start off by wondering how you came across this book in the first place. So originally, um, my professor... A professor of mine knew I was writing about climate change and affect. Um, and so he had read the book recently and suggested I read it because of that. Um, and so I enjoyed it and I wanted to review it. So that's how I came to do that. But um, basically the book is about, I think in line with a lot of my concerns, scholarly um, for climate change and literature, it's about thinking about how we connect to the real, 
how we think about the world um, and how certain things move us, how certain things change our responses to the world. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, a number of variables within that. And you mentioned that you were interested coming into it because you're going to write your your thesis on yes. uh, affect theory and the environment. Yes. Um, could you give our listeners a brief background of what affect theory is? So affect theory is complicated, but it's basically the sort of child of cultural studies and psychoanalysis to some extent. It's basically concerned with how things affect us within the world, affect with an A, of course. It's also concerned with emotions and how they operate within social settings, within pieces of art. And so it's basically about how, about feelings, about affects, um, and how they operate in a number of settings. Got it. So what would, so it's like a theory of like emotion kind of. So what would distinguish yeah. that from, I don't know, like a s- traditional psychological way of reading things in thinking about these experiences? So the difference for me is that it's a lot more abstract. It isn't tied down to the sort of neurocognitive elements of who we are, but it's rather tied down to sort of intuitive um you know, kind of theorized ways of being and thinking. Um, So there's this guy named Brian Masumi who talks about intensities as a sort of way of um, measuring affect. And I think for anybody who's interested, Masumi would be a good place to start, even though uh, there have been some flaws detected in his work. But intensity, basically, the intensity of an experience that can't necessarily be quantified. Mm Mm-hmm. That reminds me of like in opposition to the traditional psychological way of viewing things where you have the um, kind of like all powerful subject that's separated from the world and they're, they're the objects um, that we categorize and um, dominate to a certain extent. Um, like, uh, like Martin Heidegger at the beginning of the 20th century's concept of being in the world rather than kind of standing above it and looking at it and categorizing things we're submerged in an environment that is vital. I think that's a word that is used by, that you used. Yeah, it's just, I would say for a number of people who are too immersed in technology, what they're attuned to, what they pay attention to, and how they can kind of um, direct their attention is kind of, I'm not sure, like saying it's being assaulted or being, totally eroded is really generous to people, but I think it's being changed for the worse. And really the hundreds is concerned with it about looking at the world in a new way in terms of, um, you know, redirecting attention to re sort of shaping how we do that. Um, and I think a good sort of text to also think about in line with this is Jenny O'Dell's how to do nothing, um, which got a lot of press. I think, last year, but it's basically a sort of another iteration of this idea of, um, as Odell says in her subtitle, resisting the attention economy. And mm-hmm. so I think to some extent, the hundreds is theorizing a way of sort of doing that. 
So that's sort of the problematic that they're engaged with. Yeah, um, I think that's the problematic they're engaged with and a lot of people who are writing about affect in particular are, are engaged with. So trying to escape the House of Mirrors or something like that. Yeah, and just trying to kind of revitalize our connection to the real, you know. Mm-hmm. Because if we can revitalize that connection, addressing whatever crises, you know, whatever crisis sort of faces us um, in this day and age, you know, that's how we have to do it. We can't just approach it through that disconnect that yeah. a lot of people are conditioned to have. So, could you talk a little bit about how they approach this from a two-author perspective? Um, like, how did they go about that? Was it more conversational? Did they kind of, like, merge together as one authorial voice in the mode of the French philosophers from around, like, the 60s, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari? Um, which is another interesting th- thing to look at for our listeners, potentially. Really so wacky stuff. I know? would say that Deleuze and Guattari are a good comparison because Berlant and Stewart do kind of merge into one authorial voice but they also like Deleuze and Guattari did in their respective careers have their sort of own trajectories within the hundreds because sometimes there will be texts that have certain characters that take place in Chicago for example which is where Lauren Berlant teaches at the University of Chicago and then there are other um, entries that occur in Austin with their own set of characters, which is where Stewart teaches at UT Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are sort of traces of the authors in their own work. But in general, it is more of a we, you know, it is mm-hmm. a collective authorial voice that um, each sort of entry has. And they're all sort of, there's like an underlying theme and movement to it where they're maybe not in conversation, but they're, they're building up to the same thing together, something like this. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a network, and there's a, I would say, in some entries more than others, there's a sort of sequentiality, and I would say that, um, so Kathleen Stewart, she wrote Ordinary Affects. And just to be um, clear to the listeners, so Kathleen Stewart at UT Austin, she's a professor of affect theory and things like this. And yeah, she's a professor of anthropology, and I it. would say cultural studies more broadly. Mm-hmm. But um, whereas Berlant's the professor of English in the humanities. But mm-hmm. um, Stewart wrote this book called Ordinary Affects about 10 years ago. That's kind of the precursor to the hundreds. Um, so, and in that, it's kind of these, di- you know, diaristic journal entries where the author is part of the sort of subject matter, a part of the sort of ethnography that she's doing through the anthropology focus um but it really is if any of our listeners are like familiar with the work of Roland Bart I think he's yeah. a good sort of way of thinking about like auto theory or fictocriticism or kind of just making the self the study the site of study so what do you mean by auto theory or fictocriticism so in Australia, Berlin and Stewart say there's this sort of field of fictocriticism that kind of merges critical writing and fictional writing together. But there's another term we have called auto theory, which is kind of represented by, um, among others, this author named Maggie Nelson, who's also a poet, but she wrote this very 
important book called The Argonauts, which is basically an exploration of her and her transitioning partner um, and how that kind of... I don't remember exactly the sort of argument of the Argonauts necessarily, or if you mm. could say it has an argument. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely about merging sort of theory into daily life in a way, and using theory to think about certain ideas around gender, especially. Yeah, and those experiences um, can have an implicit argument or be theoretical without necessarily, you know, beforehand deciding to have. Oh, yeah. That they're going, yeah, 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 right, yeah. Um, so, and with Maggie Nelson's work, um, related to the concept, cause I know that these authors you mentioned have a, a different way of citing their sources, uh, w- within the text, like Maggie Nelson will, you know, she'll, she'll have a passage, right? And then in the margins, it'll say like Ludwig Wittgenstein. You're like, why the fuck does it say Ludwig Wittgenstein? Yeah. <laughs> and rather than like a traditional like footnote, like like qu- quoting something within the text, um, Wittgenstein and her thought kind of like merged together in a passage to the point where you can't really distinguish between the two. Um, yeah. And so it's it's an interesting way of thinking about um, ex- intellectual exchanges and creations between people, maybe not necessarily building on each other like a foundation, but rather like creating new networks of, of new thoughts that emerge from their their interactions um, creating like new authorial voices. I mean, it kind of challenges the idea of like the individual author self who just sits down and like a genius, like writes things or is writing this thing. And you have to cite these other individual geniuses who came up with something, um, yeah. kind of, it's, I, it's yeah. kind of like a more realistic way of thinking about how we talk to each other about ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, in the hundreds at least, so they take, they don't cite within the entries, but they do have the authors in parentheses at the end. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's kind of like, oh, see if you can match a sort of root of a thought to one of these people. But then they call the index where they list all these sources some things we thought with. That's cool. So in that way, <laughs> like whenever we're talking just in daily life together, our sort of thoughts we say even if we attribute them to ourselves they all mostly do exist in this sort of you know miasma of influences in our own minds um, that go unnamed Mm -hmm. so yeah i agree and they're definitely i think there's room to do a lot more of that sort of progressive interesting citing practice within academic texts in general I just wanted to talk about the relationship between auto theory and what late capitalism and the state of like media and social media does to our individual subjectivities. I think you were sharing with me an antidote before we um, got into recording about your Zoomer brother. Um, Not to admonish or be pretentious towards Zoomers, but could you talk a little bit about maybe the crisis of subjectivity that this book is kind of responding to it's kind of one of the main reasons why they wrote it right um yeah i think for me um so with my little brother recently he came to visit me and he spent a lot of the time around me on his phone which i think in general not even just zoomers but anybody who has a cell phone and is Mm -hmm. addicted to it 
Yeah, I started so getting like screen yeah. time uh, every week. It tells me like how much time I spend on my phone per day. Yeah. And I just like freaked out and I, it made me like deactivate my Twitter for a month. Like it's. Well, and so there's this weird like co presence then, the simultaneously pr- simultaneous printed presence. Like when you're around people, you're with them, but at the same time, you're not with them. Mm-hmm. And so if anything, our sort of over-reliance on technology, our sort of constant, if we talk about capitalism, I guess, we're kind of like made to be constantly working and constantly on top of things all the time. Um, Paying attention to certain things that are described beforehand. Yeah. Being connected to the real basically constantly, it's, it's a crisis. And I think the hundreds wants us to kind of be able to step outside of that perspective and to rethink how we connect to the real, basically. Um, And it's definitely not a sort of Luddite philosophy, but it's more about how can we rethink just our ways of seeing, our ways of being, you know? How can we have, you know, better relationships? How can we connect to the environment more mindfully? All those sorts of things. Um, So auto theory kind of like mimics and it is a narcissistic result of what has happened to subjectivity, but it's also the only real place you can begin a valid critique of that. Cause that's where we're at. Yes. You know, in order to like escape from the self, you have to start with the self that, you yeah. know, has been constructed. Yeah. And if you no- never start from the self, then you never have that sort of, you know, you can never, without that first step, you can't go to the second one, right? I wanted to end our interview just talking about the end of your piece, which, because you bring in, much like uh, the the text itself, you, you bring in a personal note, um, which yeah. I thought was a beautiful way to frame the piece at the beginning and the end. Could, could you talk about why why you did that and, like, the, the, the importance you derive from those experiences in relation to, like, theory um, or the book? I think I'm disposed towards thinking through experiences like that with theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and even before I was kind of a scum within, or before I was more, better read about certain things, I thought about things analytically, and a lot of people don't. And, you know, that's okay. Um, but really, I think those moments kind of suggest a more genuine connection when you're able to think about them sort of more genuine connection to what those actually mean. Um, and I was thinking about this earlier, but I think in those moments, especially that are awkward, there can be a sort of productivity there because it can, you know, what is so, why is this thing awkward? How does this make me think about what I did in my previous life? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I really think for me, theory and kind of reading and kind of like being having a sort of examined life essentially hopefully is making me a better person people talk about like plato and the the examined life quite a bit um but i think it's important to know that the examined life means something different depending on historical oh yeah like context like having an examined life now is it takes creativity. It's a different, it's a different sort of thing now, a new thing. It's never this like one 
like examining your life is one mode that we can all subscribe to. Um, it is a wacky thing, especially in our in our times now. Um, any final thoughts, Matt? Or no, just thanks for having me on, and this is been a good chat i'm happy we got to talk about this book it's been a really good chat we've covered a lot of ground oh yeah um, matt thanks so much for coming on the cleveland review of books podcast and i will talk to you soon thanks for having me yep bye-bye thank you so much for listening to the cleveland review of books podcast i'd like to thank our advisor matt richmond and my co-editor joe mastrantoni for all of their audio and radio advice I'd like to give a special shout out to some of our friends in the community, namely Max Bax Books, Visible Voice Books, Loganberry Books, Belt, Literary Cleveland, Barnhouse Journal, Cleveland Scene, and the Hildebrandt Artist Collective. Shout out to A-Live from Muamin Collective, LCD Sound System, and Projection Hotline for the music. Check out our articles on our website and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at Books. Signing out, this is Billy Lennon. We'll see you next time on the CRB Podcast.